You're listening to a Fit Plus Love production. It's just that freedom of being able to get on your bike and basically take off on any road you want or go out for any purpose. Maybe you want to clear your head. Maybe you want to work off some frustration. Maybe you just want to get out and sort of commune with nature. And I also like cycling because it's a great sport that you can share with other people. You can talk and socialize somewhat on a bike. You don't have to be going full bore all the time. More than it's easier to do that than if you're trying to run with other people. I mean, I've always found it was very awkward to try to carry on any kind of a conversation at all while running. But uh, you can share the experience and uh, you can really get out and experience so much more of the environment in a period of time than you even could running. Because you can, you know, cover a lot more miles a lot faster on your bike than you can if you're running or walking or hiking. And you're still in nature and still experiencing the environment. That's that I think that's the main thing. And there's always a challenge. There's always something that you can be working on to improve. Or one more thing you can discover about the bike. That was Anne Marie Miller. This is Marnie Salop. Thanks for tuning into my podcast, Marnie on the Move. Each week, I will be inviting interesting, innovative movers and shakers to join me on the show and share their story. You will discover and hear from thought leaders, experts, influencers, and entrepreneurs from the worlds of wellness, sports, beauty, fitness, fashion, and more. Marnie on the Move will feature an eclectic mix of people I know, work with, and think are generally doing cool things. On each episode, I sync up with my guests about life, career, and training, and showcase their expertise and story. Hello, Marnie on the Move listeners. Welcome and welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Marnie Salop. I am so glad that you are tuning in to Cycling Week and the Wheels Up series on the Marnie on the Move podcast. Today, I connect with top cycling coach, physiologist, and bike fitter, Anne-Marie Miller. Before we get into our conversation, shout out to our sponsors, Inside Tracker and Alchemine Supplements. Inside Tracker is the ultra-personalized nutrition platform that analyzes your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to help you optimize your body from the inside out. They are my go-to for understanding my inner health, looking at my blood levels, and getting great nutritional insight. Inside Tracker transforms your body's data into meaningful insights and a customized action plan of the science-backed recommendations you need to reach your goals. Take control of your health and wellness. Unlock the power of your potential. Use our code for 20% off. Thank you, MOTM. And of course, there's a link in the show notes. Also, shout out to Alchemind Supplements and Dr. Daryl Joffrey. I am loving the Alchemind plant-based organic protein powder. It has three core alkaline proteins, Sacha Inchi, Pea, Hemp, and of course, it's sugar-free. It's been a great addition into my training and fueling. I'm also using their acid-kicking mineral mix when I'm out on the bike for hydration as well as the acid-kicking greens in all of my smoothies, and their omega-3 and black seed oil supplements for inflammation and general health. Check out their website, getoffyouracid.com, and use our code MOTM20 for 20% off. Now, back to our guest. Anna-Marie Miller is a five-time UCI World Masters road cycling champ, a 15-time U.S. National Masters road cycling champ, and 
She is also a USA Cycling Level 2 licensed coach, a bike fit specialist, and specialized BG fit technician, and exercise physiologist from Columbia University. During our conversation, Anne-Marie shares where her passion for exercise, fitness, and cycling began. We talk about how she got into racing and coaching and what she loves about cycling. We also do a deep dive into cycling technique, riding, and training for cyclists of all levels, whether you're just getting started or if you are looking to take it to the next level, like me. Anne-Marie offers insight into bike selection and fit, gear shifting and pedaling technique, bike handling and racing, and electronic shifters and drivetrains. We also talk about the endurance sports testing, including FTP, power profiles, lactate threshold, and VO2 max, and how everyone can benefit from this great data and feedback. I know you're going to love this conversation, and I definitely guarantee you will learn something that helps you on your next bike ride. If you like what you hear, leave us a review. It's easy. Head over to the app on Apple, wherever you listen. Click on the Marnie on the Move podcast. Click on five stars and then click on leave a review. It's easy. Tell us what you love. Also, share this episode with your friends on your social channels. And don't forget, sign up for our newsletter, The Download. We have a new edition launching this week. Okay, now on to my conversation with Anne-Marie Miller. Thank you so much for being here. I've been dying to ask you all these questions. So I'm psyched to have the opportunity to chat with you. Well, I'm very excited to share with you some thoughts on cycling. You came up with some really good topics, so this is awesome. Before we do a deep dive into racing and training and all things cycling, let's dial it back. Where did your foray into exercise and physiology begin? Well, that's a, an excellent question. I had always been active as a kid and always been into various sports and sort of informal fitness activities. And I did run track in high school, uh, but I kind of was more interested in music when I was in when I was younger. And I actually majored in music education and vocal performance at Ball State University, which ironically is an excellent school for exercise physiology. And several of my idols in the exercise physiology world were actually professors there at one time or another. Um, but I came to New York as a Broadway singer actress and spent a few years, several years doing that. And while I was singing and acting on Broadway, uh, I joined a gym and got really involved in fitness and decided to pursue an exercise instructor group fitness certification. So I got my aerobics and fitness of America Association, group fitness certification, started teaching classes. And I began to want to know more about the actual exercise science. And I attended Marymount Manhattan College's very first fitness instructor certification program, which was basically to prepare you to take either the ACE uh, personal trainer exam or the ACSM health fitness instructor exam. And so I went through that program, loved it, took the ACSM exam and passed that and just Shortly thereafter, I left show business to start working full-time in fitness. And, you know, I've not regretted it a moment since. And as teaching classes and working as a personal trainer and a group fitness program manager, 
I really wanted a little more. I felt like I really want to understand the deep science of this. So I uh, enrolled in Columbia University's applied physiology program and got my master's of applied physiology at Columbia, and uh, which helped me really understand exercise testing and you know the more the deeper aspects of human physiology and exercise physiology a lot better. And I'll tell you, there's not a day that I don't use those principles that I learned in my training and working with other athletes, teaching classes that I don't somehow refer back to that every, every day in the fitness industry. So how did you get into cycling, racing and coaching? Well, I mean, as a kid, again, I always had a bike. I always enjoyed riding my bike up and down the country roads in my town. And I got a bike when I was in college, just to kind of have for fitness and to commute a little bit and then got talked into racing on my sororities bike team for uh, an event called Sigma Switch at Ball State, which was based, modeled after the Indiana University iconic Little 500 bike race, which is, you know, a, a relay race that is basically raced on fixed gear bikes around and around and around a, a small track. Um, and then I kind of drifted out of cycling for several years. And in New York, I had gotten more involved in running. And I did a lot of local and regional races from 5K to marathon distance and actually qualified for the Boston Marathon when I ran the London Marathon, which is the only time I've ever done that distance. Uh, and over that time, I at some point had purchased a bike just to commute around New York, make my life a little easier. And one of my fellow trainers at a, a corporate fitness center where I was working said, oh, well, you run and you ride a bike, you ought to do duathlons. And I had no idea what a duathlon was, but somehow he talked me into entering the Queen's Winter Biathlon in Flushing Meadow Park, the old World's Fair park grounds. And somehow I ended second place out of all the women. So I was hooked and I started doing a lot of these run, bike, run events. And I really enjoyed that format. So I did a lot of local and regional duathlons. And along the way, I had entered a couple of it. I had participated in a couple of charity bike rides like an MS ride and some other local charity. And out of the blue, I got a brochure. Remember, this is before the days of email. Right, when they used paper. <laughs> when they used to snail mail things around for an event called the Bicycle Tour of Colorado. And it was, the brochure was so seductive. I said, I have to do this. Even though I had never done six days of riding 425 plus miles over five mountain passes of 11,000 feet in elevation. But so I kind of started training myself for this event. And I did that. And it happened to be the first time they hosted that event, by the way. And I did it. And I was in love with it. And literally for the next five years, I you know, trained and went out and participated in that. But after the first year, I realized, well, gee, you know, some of these people are really a lot better than I am at group riding and pace lining and stuff. So I started looking around for opportunities to learn more about group riding skills and pace lining. And I joined the New York Cycle Club, which has an annual program every spring. That call, they call the SIG program. And I'm not even sure what that stands for. I think self-improvement group or special interest group. But I joined the ASIC, which was the kind of the fastest uh, level of their training program. And the goal of this program is to teach riders good group riding skills and also to train to complete a century ride. So after 10 weeks of training every Saturday and doing two group rides a week in the park on the weekdays, we we did a century ride, 100 mile ride to Bear Mountain and back. And I enjoyed that so much. I was a ride leader for the A-SIG group for the next three years. 
And I do think that really gave me the confidence to ride comfortably with other people and handle my bike a lot more smoothly and just develop a lot better bike handling skills. So, you know, that was really, that gave me the confidence. Then after, you know, a lot of group riding and doing a lot of other activities, I just kind of was questioning, well, what does this prove? You know, am I really getting any better as a cyclist? You know, am I really any better at my handling skills? And then I overheard a woman who was in New York Cycle Club say, oh, well, my bike handling skills really improved when I started racing. And I had no illusions about bike racing. I had seen when I was out running early in the morning in the park, I'd seen those packs of riders in the races in Central Park. And I thought, oh, that that looks really intimidating. I, I don't think I could ever do that. But I sort of said to myself, you know, if I want to be a better cyclist, you know, I might as well accept this challenge. And, you know, all I want to be is more skillful on the bike. So I entered racing and ironically, the first out of town race I entered, I won. And I was so oblivious, I didn't even realize I had won the Category 4 women's race. So the thing was, they started all the women, the the higher level categories and the entry level riders, the Cat 4s together. So I didn't know who was who. And I just started riding at the first group. And then the advanced riders, there was um, our next to the last lap, somebody attacked out of this front group. And I did not get in that break. And I was riding with one other person. We went around for another 15-mile loop of Bear Mountain State Park. And coming into the finish, she started to sprint. And I thought, oh, I didn't come all this way to finish last. So I accelerated and somehow beat her across the line. And so I thought, oh, good. I saved myself from, you know, being totally embarrassed. I'm not last. And then her boyfriend said, well, you were first. And I go, first at what? And he says, first in your category. And then about 10 minutes later, the other riders from our category start coming through over the finish line. That's awesome. There are people. <laughs> so then I was like, then I thought, okay, you know, I should feel confident enough to be able to try this now. And definitely uh, bike stickling is one of those things where if you're open to it, you learn something new every time you get on the bike. I just think it's, it's such a wonderful sport because I still keep discovering things. I still, still, still keep discovering ways to improve my skills or ways to challenge myself or, you know, just uh, ways to have more fun when I go out on the bike. Yeah. And what was the women's cycling scene like then? And how have you seen it? <laughs> oh, I mean, I know I it's still kind of there, but like, yeah. So how have you seen it grow? It has definitely improved. I mean, when I started racing with our local bike racing club, right. Century Road Club of America, which is the oldest and largest bicycle racing club in USA cycling. So wow. we have the largest membership and we've been around for over a hundred years, actually like 120 right now, but uh, it is a large club. And I found that of their 20 races that they would host in central park every year, they would be, we would be lucky to have three dedicated women's fields. The rest of the time, if women wanted to race, they had to ride in one of the men's fields. And usually, you know, in entry-level women, lower category women will end up riding with the C men riders. Um, and uh, even then, after I did upgrade, you know, and I would be riding with the faster men's fields, there still weren't many races for dedicated women's fields. And um, there were several open races. In fact, I almost hate to say it, but it seems like there were more open races back then. I think it was easier to get communities to buy into hosting races yeah probably cheaper to get the police protection and yes. ambulance coverage you need to host these but 
but uh, definitely on the local scene, there weren't a lot of opportunities and there was, there wasn't a great deal of women's participation. By contrast, just to show you the growth of women's cycling now, our local club at every race, they have at least one women's field and many times two. Uh, a race for the uh, higher category women and also a, a dedicated category, race for the lower category women. And we we have all, we host an annual beginner clinic yeah. for both men and women every year. Usually we get about 20 to 25 participants. And it could be because the pandemic didn't give people an opportunity to participate in this last year. But this year we did the um, women's clinic on the first weekend of June, there were 54 women who showed up. That's awesome. 5.30 in the morning, oh, mind you. Oh, you know, my it's, God. <laughs> you know, I like going to Sunday brunch. It's like you you have to be pretty hardcore and pretty dedicated to wake up and show up in the middle of Manhattan at 5.30 a.m. So I was so proud of them. And it was honestly, I've helped with several of these women's clinics over the years. This was one of the best prepared group of women I've seen. Everybody had a great attitude. Everybody was, you know, reasonably skilled and safe. And, you know, they were so motivated and had such a great attitude. I was really inspired. So I think women's cycling is on track to uh, grow even more and help more women find, you know, a way to get fit and challenge themselves. So how are you feeling about the Women's Tour de France in 2022? I'm very excited about that. I think I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I think the media will be all over it. And if, if indications from even some of the other major women's races in recent years and yeah. women's just women's cycling scene, I follow it avidly because it's so exciting. Uh, recently, uh, the Women's Giro d'Italia or right. Women's Tour of Italy. last week, yeah. Yeah, last week. And unfortunately, they didn't have much TV coverage, but the races themselves sound like they were super exciting. And the personalities involved in women's cycling are just as dynamic. In fact, probably even more so than the men in, in many levels. There's a lot of attacking. There's a lot of people, you know, daring to, you know, put it all on the line. And they have some great personalities, I think, yeah. uh, in women's cycling right now. So I am, I am just so excited for that. I think it's going to be an awesome event. And I think that, you know, at last, women on an international level are getting some parity with men, yeah. which is awesome. It's really cool. For the week of cycling on the Marnie on the Move podcast, we talked to Omar Shapira, who's the five-time Israeli national yeah. champion going to the Olympics and also... Ella Harris from New Zealand, who won the right. Swift Academy. I talent identification yeah. contest. Oh, I know that. I saw those two names. I was so excited. I was like, that is fantastic. I'm going to bring bringing on a lot of these amazing cyclists and talent in the world of cycling over the next year because I'm super psyched. Oh, I also need to level up my cycling. So when is the cycling club event in New York City? Is there another one, like a clinic or? Yes, I by, by coincidence, we have one of our club races this weekend uh, on Sunday morning, and uh, this one will finish with what they call a Metropolitan Museum finish, which is slightly about 200 yards further than our usual finish at the top of Caspaw Hill. Uh, but we do have another, if you have any women out there, and if this podcast happens to come up before July 31st, we have one more opportunity for beginner women to come out and try bike racing. And the cool thing about this women's clinic, it's on July 31st. Uh, look for it. It'll be on bikereg.com. 
Also, you can look up www.crca.net for information about it. Basically, it's open to any woman who has no experience at bike racing and wants to learn something. And the nice part about the race is it's not just a race. There are actually experienced riders who ride with the field. The, the field is controlled for uh, a portion of the first part of the race so that everybody stays together right. and everybody gets still of riding in a group. And then uh, at a certain point, it, just like uh, with professional world tour racing, the moto drops the flag more or less and the field is open to race. And at that point, there are experienced riders who actually you know, have assignments to try to stay with the groups of women and give some advice. They can't affect the outcome of the race. Like don't go, don't expect to ask an experienced cyclist, hey, give me a lead out to the finish. That would not help. But um, but they provide some advice and you know they can encourage the riders to work together or you know remind them, you know, of, of different things that they should think about during the race. And then after the race there is a short debriefing where everybody can kind of uh, you know, the experienced riders can make comments and the uh, new racers also have a chance to ask questions and uh, help to understand what went on during that time and what they can expect at future races. That's awesome. So this is also great. So I've, I'm kind of interested in leveling up my technique and I feel confident on the bike. I don't want to race because I definitely don't want to wipe out, but... Right. That's not my level of competition thrill, but I would really like to, as a triathlete, I don't really ride in groups. You know, we obviously, you're a triathlon coach as well. You know, you're not allowed to be even six bikes close to another rider. And when you pass them, you need to be on the other side of the street and then ride six bikes ahead. So it's really the opposite of cycling in a lot of ways. Like there's no drafting, there's no, it's just a different sport, right? So I love being on my bike. I definitely want to get faster. I feel like having some skills from the world of bike racing might be a benefit. Absolutely. And we do, even if you, one thing that nice that CRCA does and, and any USA cycling level, you know, licensed coach can probably help you with this. So I would encourage any of your listeners to reach out to your local cycling group to see if they offer any skills workshops or clinics. The Our local bike racing club, Century Road Club of America, does offer skills sessions for members. And so if you, you can even join the club as an associate member and just do the skill session. And we really go over some of these things, exactly what you're talking about, that can help you perform better and also have more confidence when you get in a situation where you might have something unexpected happen. Like what happens if you do have to, you know, hit a pothole that's big, or what happens if you have to corner sharply during a race, or how do you handle snaky serpentine descents? And we go over all these things, cornering, bunny hopping. We, we go over what happens if you are in a situation where you're riding with others and you happen to bump somebody, forgive me. But, um, but the nice thing is any USA cycling a licensed coach can also help you with those skills. So don't be afraid to, you know, yeah. look through the directory on cycling and try to contact a local coach. Cause I, I, and with, with athletes that I coach, I just, as a matter of course, I take them out at least once or twice a season. And I say, today we're going to work on skills. And we go over these very principles that yeah. will help you handle your bike better. And believe me, if you can learn these techniques, good cornering, smooth shifting, you know, how to use your gearing effectively, how to be safe in a race, you know, how not to grab a handful of brakes every time you need to slow, you know, so that you can moderate your speed without slamming on the brakes. 
you could save, if you think about this, if you save two or three seconds on every corner, even in a triathlon, and I time trial, so I, I do those kind of races where you're not allowed to draft and not allowed to be near another rider. But if you can save two or three seconds on every corner, if you can carry a little momentum from one downhill into the next uphill and save two or three, five seconds every time, if you can motor over the top and get momentum faster on a downhill and save two or five seconds every time, you're going to save minutes by the end of the race. Your, your time is probably going to be better invested and your money by taking a few sessions with a coach and improving your bike handling skills than it is by spending an inordinate amount of money on an expensive set of wheels that if you don't have the skills, you're not really going to be able to get the benefit of using those expensive wheels anyway. They're just like bling for your bike. Right. I agree a hundred percent. So what is it now that you love the most about cycling? And you can give me more than one thing because I, I love everything. This is, a, um, yeah, I know, me too. It's like, this is a great question. It's just that freedom of being able to get on your bike and basically take off on any road you want or uh, go out for any purpose. Maybe you want to clear your head. Maybe you want to work off some frustration. Maybe you just want to get out and sort of commune with nature. Um, and I also like cycling because it's a great sport that you can share with other people. You can talk and socialize somewhat on a bike you don't have to be going full bore all the time. More than it's easier to do that than if you're trying to run with other people. I mean, I yeah. always found it was very awkward to try to carry on any kind of a conversation at all while running. But uh, you can share the experience and uh, you can really get out and experience so much more of the environment in a period of time than you even could running. Because you can you know, cover a lot more miles a lot faster on your bike than you can if you're running or walking or hiking. And you're still in nature and still experiencing the environment. Yeah. That, that, I think that's the main thing. And there's always a challenge. And as I alluded to before, there's always something that you can be working on to improve. Yeah. Or one more thing you can discover about the bike. So There's a lot of room for growth in cycling. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What are you currently doing? I know you're on Zwift and I see you outside on 9W. And right. we've gone mm -hmm. on a couple, we went on a ride together during the pandemic, socially distanced, of course. What's your current max distance? What are you into these days in the world of cycling? Well, I'm training mostly just for kind of just moderate distance road races. And I am participating in, there. A it's a very limited series this year, but I'm trying to do the races in the New Jersey time trial series, which usually is pretty extensive. And they usually have about 10 or 12 races over the course of a season. And, you know, uh, you can, if you enter the series championship competition, you earn points for every race that you complete and finish based on your placing. And, you know, it's a good way to kind of compete and have something to shoot for. And this year, of course, because we're all you know, still kind of climbing out of the pandemic, they were not able to hold a lot of the races, but they're doing a shorter series of races. So I'm just trying to use those as a way to really motivate myself and have something fun to look forward to. Yeah. And um, I'm also looking for any other races. A lot of races this year have been, you know, postponed or were not able to be held because of such uncertainty earlier in the year about what we were actually going to be able to do. And I'd also like to get in some law. I may go to Masters Nationals, which they just announced was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, cool. On all through the 8th. But, you know, we kind of have to check the logistics and see if that's feasible for this year. And um, I'd also like to get in one good long sort of grand fondo. I was just going to ask. There's one in Maryland I'm looking at, actually. 
Oh, cool. There's one in South, I don't know if it's South Carolina or it's North Carolina. Wow. You know, that's, I mean, it, it can't go wrong down there. I, I've been to I, Masters Nationals, was in North Carolina one year and was in Augusta, Georgia one year. You, you can't go wrong because there are certainly, and also Virginia, you can't go wrong anywhere in that part of the country. And it's all levels, yeah. right? I mean, it's a grand fondo, but it's... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're just riding for yourself and people go into those with all kinds of different goals. Yes, some people are very competitive and, you know, want to end up, you know, with some kind of a prize or personal record. And other people want to do it just for the challenge of, you know, I want to train to be able to just ride a hundred yeah. miles and yeah. complete it. I believe that that's not an easy thing. If you've never done it before, and especially it looks it, like 9,000 feet of climbing or something. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be, you know, you're not going to be cruising along the whole time. It's going to be work. Yeah. But, um, you know, I think those kind of things are awesome because they offer a challenge to everyone. Yeah. And everyone can put a big check mark next to an event like that and feel a real sense of accomplishment once they've finished. Yeah. That's awesome. So, speaking of everyone cycling, let's rewind for a second. Getting mm-hmm. the right size bike. For my beginner mm-hmm. cyclists, and this is really just for all of my amazing listeners who are really curious, and I call it bike curious. Yeah, you know, it is so important to get the right bike and to get a bike fit. Talk to me a little exactly. bit about this, and I know that you're also a bike fitter, so yeah, yeah. Yes. Explain and why this yeah. is so important. It's so important because the size of the bike affects your whole performance and comfort on the bike. The wrong size bike can be the difference between a great experience and a disaster that could actually end up in overuse injuries. Um, it, the right size bike is important because if the bike is the right size, A, you'll be better at your hand bike handling, especially a bike that is too large is cumbersome to pilot around or a bike with handlebars that is too wide. And, and it makes it much harder for you to have good bike handling skills. Also, the bike should be in generally the the optimal frame size so that you can be comfortably positioned on the bike. There are a lot of individual bike parts like the stem, the handlebars, the seat posts, the crank length that we can adjust to customize the fit for the rider. But you just, you do want to make sure that you get the right size frame or a frame that's as close to the optimal frame size as possible. If, if, the, if the rider is not set up properly, since cycling is such a repetitive activity and your legs are constantly right. going through the same pattern of motion, uh, you can end up with knee injuries or low back problems or any number of injuries if the if the bike is not fit for you and with your own personal fitness and con- physical conditions in mind. I would fit somebody and also your current level of experience, right. especially for beginners. You want to start out with a good general position that will allow you to evolve as a rider without putting you into a position that's so advanced that it contorts you into a really uncomfortable position. And you definitely, you know, look for someone who is certified as a bike fitter. Many bike shops promise a bike fit. And I can't with all confidence say that the guy behind the counter has any experience in human anatomy or bike fitting or biomechanics. So look for someone who has at least some sort of certification as a bike fitter, preferably someone who is a USA Cycling licensed coach or has extensive experience in the fitness industry. So a good background in biomechanics and anatomy, because all those things are very important. And then also make sure you find someone as a bike fitter who is willing to listen to you, because a lot of people will try to 
cram the rider into the same position as, you know, the winner of the Tour de France. And, you know, <laughs> right. the demands of, of beginner cyclists are very different from someone who is spending seven or eight hours a day on the bike and has been biking for 15, 20, 25 years. So, you know, make sure that the the fitter understands you and really looks at your particular um, fitness level and also just physical condition and limitations. I would fit somebody completely differently if they had any kind of issues with, say, flexibility or low back issues or knee issues, then I would fit someone who didn't have those problems. I would also deal with somebody differently who didn't have good core strength um, or somebody who's inexperienced at holding themselves in a very aggressive position. So, you know, you really need someone who will listen to you and uh, wants to work to get you in the optimal position. And then how often do you think experienced cyclists should get refit and fine-tuned? This is a good question. I think, you know, definitely anytime you get a new bike, get a bike fit, just right. because there can be subtleties about the difference in the geometry. And even if you say, oh, my saddle height is, you know, 71.5 or whatever, it may not be on that new bike. And I have people that come back to me literally every year for a bike fit just because they they want to make sure they're still in the right position. for, And especially if you have changed your goals or your style of riding, yep. if someone has uh, had a big change in their fitness level, they suddenly increased their fitness a lot, or maybe over the pandemic, they didn't ride as much, they got a little out of shape. And um, all these things can affect your position on the bike. So uh, I would say it doesn't hurt to get some kind of a, at least a fit follow up or tune up every yeah. year. If you are, if you have radically changed your style of riding or your cycling goals. And of course, your fit on a tri bike, as yeah, you know, totally is going to be very radically <laughs> yeah. different than it would be on a road bike. So make sure you do have a bike fit for sort of each style of bike you ride. If you do cyclocross, get a fit that's suitable for that. If you do mountain biking, obviously get a fit on your mountain bike as yeah. well. It's super important. It's a worthy investment. A lot of people kind of think, oh, I don't want to do that. You know, why do I need to do that? So I know, I, I mean, I always get fit on my bike. I feel like I'm due for new fitting actually after this weekend's mm -hmm. triathlon. You know, we were talking a little bit about movement and flow. So let's just talk about pedaling and what people okay. need to, you know, we're going to go through some like serious things that, you know, I'm curious about leveling up my skills. I'm sure some of my listeners are, and I'm sure that, you know, there are people who are just getting into cycling and are like, I just want to ride my bike. So let's talk pedaling. What do people need to know about pedaling and well, the main thing is I would say once you have been fit properly so that you can optimize a good smooth pedal stroke and you understand proper positioning, yes. uh, the worst mistake to see is people as they even get tired, watch people in the spin class even as they get tired, their knees fly out to the sides. They start pointing their toes down because they're fatiguing and they're trying to use every other muscle but the one they're supposed to be using. But, you know, once you understand like good cycling technique, you want to pedal with a nice smooth pedal stroke, make sure you're pushing through the center of the ball of the foot. You almost want to feel like you're dry leading down with your heel of your foot and keep your foot in a relatively neutral position. So the pedal stays or the foot stays in a more flat position rather than a lot of pointing right. and flexing and changing position, which is loses energy with all that excessive motion and loses power production. Um, but you want to aim for, uh, especially for these endurance sports like triathlon, like long distance cycling, maintaining a pretty consistent pedal cadence during your ride. If you look at runners, runners don't run thud, thud, thud. 
Right. But, but you know, they keep pretty steady leg speed during the, during their run. Similarly on the bike, you don't want to just try to ride in one gear all the time. And sometimes you're pedaling at 35 RPMs and sometimes you're pedaling at 110. You want to shift gears smoothly so that you can maintain an optimal pedal cadence. And this can vary a little bit from rider to rider, but in general, for road cycling, we suggest a cadence of 90 to 100 RPMs because that has been shown to be aerobically the ideal, the optimal leg speed. When you're pedaling at a slower cadence, you're kind of mashing away on the pedals and it becomes more of uh, a strength maneuver or something that's using more of the anaerobic energy system or strength rather than aerobic endurance. So if you maintain a nice smooth pedal speed, it's less fatiguing than if you're constantly zigzagging between spinning out or pedaling too fast and then pedaling too slow and mashing away. Uh, some riders do prefer to have a cadence of, I'd say, like, you know, around 85 to 95. But I think for most, that 90 to 100 is a nice sweet spot. And the good thing about keeping your cadence there is if you do and shifting your gears so you can maintain that kind of leg speed, if you do to suddenly accelerate, you have some room that you can actually do it. If you're mashing away in a big gear and suddenly you need to move fast, it's really hard to bring your legs up to speed and actually increase your speed effectively. And the one practical application I would say for this, even for somebody who's not going to worry about being in a race or sprinting at the end or attacking in the middle of races, imagine you're riding along and you kind of came up to a stoplight, weren't paying attention, and suddenly you're halfway into an intersection and the light turns red and there's a bus coming. You want to accelerate and get out of there, right? So if you're pedaling at optimal leg speed, you can accelerate faster just, you know, for a very, very practical application or anytime you do need to accelerate suddenly. So I would say, and in order to do that, we have to shift gears. Uh, many people don't realize that we've over the, over the last 20 years or so, the opportunities for uh, shifting gears have increased. We've added more gears to the, the rear cassette, the sprocket in the back, so that you have more options, which makes it easier to climb hills uh, and maintain a higher cadence or easier to maintain an optimal cadence if you are on a slight downhill or you have a big tailwind and you can go faster. So one of the things with uh, these advanced gears is I find a lot of people just stick the bike in one gear and then just, you know, pedal at whatever leg speed to stay in that gear. So don't be afraid to shift gears. In fact, a lot of the bike computers now on bikes, if you have certain brands of shifting, like I had Shimano DI2 shifting on my bike, and on my Garmin, whether I like it or not, at the end of my ride, it's set up and it shows me exactly how many gear shifts I did on my bike. Does it show you like, how long you were in, like if you're in zone two and like what gears you were in? Oh, yeah, yeah. It'll show you all this too. But even just from a strictly mechanical viewpoint, it is kind of astounding how many times one shifts gears. Like I went on a simple ride to from my apartment to state line once and turned around and came back. It was like less than two hours that I think I had done. 40 shifts on the front chain rings and something like 382 on the cassette. So, you know, when you think about, you're just, if you are really working the gears when you're riding rolling terrain, you're just quick, 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 constantly shifting so that you maintain a steady power output and a steady leg speed. And, you know, for, physiologically, that's the, the answer for that. Now, the other side of this is you obviously you need to shift the gears and you may say, well, why should I shift? 
because we have obviously there's a two chain rings usually on most bikes right. in the front, a large chain ring, which has more teeth and a smaller one that's closer to the bike that has fewer teeth. In general, if you're climbing, you want to be in the smaller chain ring so that you can spin easier. Um, or even if you're riding into a real headwind, you might find yourself in your small chain ring yeah. sometime. But if time you're in a situation where it's hard to pedal at the optimal leg speed, you'll probably want to be in the small chain ring. When you're go descending or on a flat, you've got a huge tailwind, um, you may want to be in your what we call the big chain ring, which means that the bike will travel farther with each pedal rotation. The bike will travel less far with each pedal rotation when you're in the small chain ring. And then we go to the cassette on the rear. Most bikes now, uh, the standard cassette comes with a, an 11 speed cassette right. and some companies are now offering 12 speed cassettes as well. So you have, if you have two chain rings up front and 11 cogs in the back, you have 22 gears that you can effectively move through. Um, now the idea is how do you know when to shift and how do you do smooth shifting? The idea is basically um, imagine this, the way that we describe how far the bike travels with each uh, wheel rotation is something called gear ratio. Without getting too geeky, yeah. gear ratio is just kind of imagine the number of teeth on the chain ring in the front, either right. big or small, divided by the number of teeth in the, uh, the cog on the back. And then how many times, divide that and it will tell you how many times the wheel will spin per uh, rotation. Okay. So if you had, a, I'm going to make it simple because my math is really bad. <laughs> Imagine you've got sort of, you know, compact gearing, you've got a 50 tooth chain ring on the front and you want to be in your, let's make this real easy. Your, let's say we got it. Um, what goes into 50 real easy. 25. Imagine that you had <laughs> 25. Yeah. Okay. We, yeah. You had a 25 on the back. That means the wheel will spin two times or it has a gear ratio of two. Um, now, when you, what we want to do is adjust and shift gears so that we keep the same leg speed with relatively similar power. And this is where it gets right. a little tricky. You are in the big chain. We don't want to be what we call cross chaining, meaning if you look at the cassette on the back and you look at the chain rings on the front, since the big chain ring is on the outside, you want to keep the chain in as straight a line as possible when you're pedaling. So ideally, if you're in the big chain ring in the front, you want to be sort of in the middle gears to the, to the gears on the far outside or toward the heaviest gears, the right. gears with the small the number of teeth when you're in the big chain ring. If you're in the small chain ring, you can be in the easiest gears very easily. It'll keep the chain in a straight line and you can go from the easiest gears about to the middle of the cassette in the back. Right. So there, the crossover point is a little debatable sometimes, and sometimes it depends on the terrain or on the environmental conditions like wind. But in general, if you are in the front chain ring, the big chain ring right. in the front, you're motoring along, you know, doing 20, 25 miles an hour, and suddenly you start to climb. You'll find a point where if you are in the big chain ring in the front and you get in, let's say, the third easiest cog in the back, right. do not shift into any easier gears in the back. Instead, I know this is what gets a little complicated, but if you're in uh, kind of standard chain rings, which is a 53-39 combination, or uh, a mid-compact, which is a 52-36 combination, once you get over to that fourth easiest or third easiest uh, cog in the back, 
instead of shifting one more easy in the back, instead go two gears heavier in the back, then quickly shift to the small chainring okay. in the front. And that will put you in a similar gear ratio, meaning divide that, that front chain ring right. by the number of the back and it will be a smooth shift. So you won't feel a big change in power. Right. What happens with a lot of beginner riders is they're grinding along in the big chain ring. They get to the point where they're in the big chain ring in the front and the various easiest gear in the back. And that chain is stretched to its maximum. So the minute that you shift into the small chain ring, it's going to be like you took a rubber band and went, and, and you can hear it you're on your bike. Like you can yeah. hear the, yeah. the click, 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 click. And it feels oh, like yeah. your gear just broke. <laughs> yeah. And you'll be lucky if you don't drop your chain, if you've yeah. done that. So you don't want to make that mistake. You're going up a hill. You start to feel it's getting hard to pedal at 90 RPM. You're in the third easiest cog go quick, quick, at least two gears heavier in the back and then shift into the small chain ring in the front. And you'll feel like it's about the same amount of resistance. Sometimes you have to go three gears heavier in the back rather than two. Um, and to shift from the small chain ring to the big, you do just the opposite. Let's say you've crested the top of that hill in your small chain ring and now you're starting to descend. Make sure, uh, you know, make sure you move the chain, uh, the cogs over to at least the third or fourth chain ring mm -hmm. on the back. But as you start to pick up speed, instead of riding it out all the way so you're in the small chain ring in the front and the heaviest gear in the back, when you get about midway in that cassette in the back and you can see, I'm not going uphill anymore, I'm only going right. to pick up speed, then go to the big chain ring in the front and quickly go two gears easier in the back. And keep so pedaling I, down I, the hill. Keep pedaling, yes. And my advice to people is always go to the heaviest option first. So when you are going from your big chain rings to your small chain ring, you're going to be shifting into heavier gears in the back, shift to those heavier gears in the back first, then go to the small chain ring. When you're going from the small to the big chain ring, go to the big chain ring first and then go two gears easier in the back. And that way you'll get a smooth gear shift and you won't miss a beat. You'll just, your leg will be rolling along. And so you can like keep your you were, cadence at the same place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And your power output. So that you won't get this, because if you do make that mistake of climbing, let's say in your big chain ring and you roll all the way over to the easiest cog and then shift to the small chain ring. Not only do you get this horrible sense of, you know, this big bouncing around, almost yeah. it's almost like rolling backwards, but you, you lose power so exponentially that now you're going to have to start, you know, spinning a lot faster just to maintain a power output that's even close to that. So we similar cadence, similar power output, shift gears smoothly and you'll be you'll roll along and you'll see uh, that those two uh, metrics stay really smooth. Yeah. I mean, that's really awesome advice. I completely can visualize what that looks like and I feel it, you know, I can feel it the way you're describing right. it, like being on the bike. Cause I've, I've been there yeah. where, you know, I'm out riding and there's a, I'm very fast on the downhills. I have no fear. I will, you know, go into my big gear and keep pedaling and try to go as fast as possible. And, you know, then I come to the bottom of the hill and I kind of peter out as I'm trying to get up to the next climb. And right. I just want to right. keep maintain my cadence and maintain my power, keep going. But I always, it does yeah. often happen to me where, because I don't know that trick, where yeah. I will, you know, like just, I quickly, I go to quickly from one, from the big ring to the small ring and 
then I, I don't drop my chain, but yeah. You have to moderate on the, on the cassette when you do go from the small to the big or the big to the small. And that's the trick. And believe me, I work with people all the time on that. And once they, once they get it, it's like a light bulb went off and they are, you know, they, they are so proud of themselves, first of all. And second of all, they, I've had athletes of mine who constantly remind me, I'm so much smoother than I used to be. And I say, yeah, no, I can see it. And, uh, and it's true. They, and you don't lose a little bit of momentum, you know, that you would normally if you just flip from the big to the small chain, right? Basically, you know, you look at like your power, your heart rate, and your speed in your zone. Oh, for sure. Yes. I mean, because if I see, especially if I'm analyzing uh, a workout or analyzing results from a race, you know, and I want to see, okay, where is something that might have, that an athlete might improve on? And I see that, you know, oh, they shifted gears, for instance. Uh, and they went into too easy a gear and they lost some momentum for a little bit. And lo and behold, that's where the break went and they weren't ready for it. Something like that. Yes, I definitely look at power and cadence. And I was just having this discussion with one of my athletes the other week because we were talking about downhills. And, you know, I said, you want to aim for keeping up, you know, if you just want to ride so you're not fatiguing yourself and you don't have to make these big changes in leg speed, you know, every time you go down and up, I say, try to just find a gear where you can keep a similar cadence so that as you descend and start back up, you don't have to radically change your leg speed. And for this particular athlete, they were like, well, but you know, I'm, I'm bigger. And so I pedal slower on the downhill. I say, no, I say, I've got a drill for you. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, try to keep your leg speed up and feel confident that you can just spin easier because then it won't be this big change and oh now I have to do a big gear shift if you do get on a flat or another slight uphill or something so um yes definitely I look at those things and I see hmm where I see this person is producing this much power but how were they doing it you know were they doing it like that leads me into like being bigger or smaller as a person and how to tap into your power and be fast because this is something that you know, in my personal experience, and I know we're probably like the same size, you know, you probably have a lot more muscle than me. I know that I want to be faster on the bike. And Mm. I know I can be but I know that, you know, is it that I'm not strength training? Is it I'm not using the right muscles? Like I know that we're supposed to be using our glutes on the bike and not our quads. I mean, it, it does help, you know, just every now and then, you know, it might help, you know, have somebody look at you and just make sure that you're you are using the muscles correctly or you are, you know, using good cycling technique and doing a variety of workouts so that you can address your weaknesses because everybody wants to go back to their wheelhouse of what they feel good doing or what they're strong at or what they like to do. Uh, Guilty as charged. I would prefer to do only the workouts that I like. I, you know, I get, you know, physically sick when I see certain workouts from my coach on a, not that one, but you know, so really it, it is a matter of, you know, really finding out what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and then having workouts that will help you to strengthen your weaknesses while at the same time, maintaining your strengths. And some of that, yes, you can do, I don't just do it. People I think rely too heavily on the FTP test, yes. right? It's a very useful tool as if for anyone who doesn't know an FTP test is basically will identify the highest power output that you could hold in theory for one hour 
Now, most FTP tests are not conduct. I actually had to do a brutal one hour FTP test, and that was probably the one of the least fun things I've ever done. Oh my but uh, it was yeah. good. It was a challenge. Um, but in, mo- in most cases, we use, and there are many protocols to determine your FTP. They usually involve writing for periods of time that are far less than one hour and then calculating your FTP based on a percentage of the power output you have. Right, like the one I do is like two times 20 minutes, typically. I usually do it on Zwift. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the 20-minute test is a pretty pretty standard one across the industry. Basically, you ride as warm up sufficiently, then ride as hard as you can for 20 minutes, take your average power for that 20-minute period, and take 95% of that, and that establishes, quote, your functional threshold power or the highest intensity you could hold for one hour. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be the fastest guy on the block because how about how good are you when you get in a situation where you have to go really hard for a shorter period of time? How are you in a situation where you have to go super hard for a shorter period of time? So with my athletes, I actually have them do a whole power profile where we go out and try and establish their peak 10 second power and their peak one minute power and their peak five minute power, as well as their 20 minute FTP profile, because these things are very telling. You may get someone who's off the charts at one minute efforts, who's really, you know, really high. Yeah, exactly. And so this person then would, it would suggest to me, okay, your one minute peak power is super high. Either you're sort of more of a natural sprinter or natural breakaway specialist or you'd be better at those short intervals, like on a track or something, or we can still use this because look, you have this strength here. Let's design some workouts that are going to help you increase your FTP. And on the other hand, you get people who come out of uh, more of a world of the individual endurance sports like triathlon, uh, who have, may have a very high FTP. And if you get them above their FTP for even a couple of repetitions, they die because mm-hmm. they simply are not yeah. used to working at these super threshold intensities in any case. And so for them, I would say, you know, we're going to work on improving your one minute peak power, your five minute peak power. And someone who's really strong at a five minute peak power is kind of like a a good all arounder or someone who, you know, is a pursuer in track or something. They can go for these slightly long distances. You know, they'd be great to have to establish a breakaway because they can go really hard for a long enough period that everybody else is going to get discouraged and say, forget about it. Hope they come back. Um, And I think that designing, and this is where to me as a coach, This is the fun part of it. It's putting together the pieces of the puzzle so that you can get the athlete to improve and you can get them away from just focusing on one part of the spectrum of cycling fitness and really improve the whole spectrum. And believe me, even if you have a a really high FTP and maybe you're not as good at the shorter anaerobic intervals or FTP uh, intervals, by improving that high end or VO2 max intervals, increasing your VO2 max is going to actually help to raise your functional threshold power as well. So it's a win-win anyway. And because I also think it's more interesting because you can introduce more variety in the workouts and use different techniques that you, than you would normally do just to go out and do long intervals. Yes. Um, so I, it makes it much more exciting and much more fun. And so speaking of testing and you know all the different tests that you do with your mm-hmm. athletes, I know you do both physical tests and physiological tests, right? So you've done the lactate yeah. threshold test, which is the one we did together yeah. where I was riding and right. you took my blood and we put that on a chart for my triathlon coach at the time who wanted to see mm-hmm. what my lactate threshold really was versus what Garmin said. Yeah. 
professional athletes do those kinds of tests, but I decided to do it. <laughs> I think it's great. What are some of the other tests? I think, you know, for people who are even recreationally interested in any kind of endurance training, running, cycling, any other endurance sports, it's a good idea to do some of these tests because it helps you understand your physiology a little better. And it can give you a better picture into how, how your body operates. As you mentioned, the lactate threshold test produces, tries to predict a similar result to the functional threshold power test. In other words, it, the lactate threshold test strives to identify the highest intensity that an athlete can hold for an extended period of time, which is similar to what the FTP test does. And what we do in an FTP test is we have an athlete work at increasingly harder intensities, usually for periods of time that are long enough, say a minimum of three minutes, yeah. so that there can actually be a change in blood lactate levels. Because remember, physiology doesn't happen in an instant. Even if you've noticed using a heart rate monitor during your workouts, you can increase your intensity, but your heart rate response will um, yeah. be about 30 seconds slower to respond just because it takes time for the body to uh, perceive these changes in intensity and then send the signals to the physiological system to increase uh, the uh, energy output in a variety of ways. So as we work at increasingly harder levels of intensity, and at the end of each one of these stages, we take a small finger prick blood sample or a blood sample from an earlobe. And by monitoring the level of blood lactates, we know when an athlete is uh, in, in approaching their lactate threshold. Um, obviously, blood lactate production increases with the intensity of exercise. And an, in submaximal exercise, that's not a problem because this lactate acid is actually recycled through the metabolic processes and available to be reused for more energy production. The trouble is when we increase exercise intensity to a point that is too high. It's like filling a bucket with water to the point where it's running over. Right. It, you can't you had a bucket with a hole in the bottom and you filled it faster than water could drain out. Lactic acid accumulates in the body to the point where it cannot be recycled fast enough. And the, the only way for a person to continue is to slow down enough to let the system stabilize again to where the, the body is recycling that blood, those blood lactates at a rate that it can handle. So, so the goal of that's a hard, uh, hard thing to hear. You have to slow down. Yeah. And the, right. Well, I mean, you'll just reach that point. You know yeah. yourself, if you go out and start riding and suddenly you get to the point where yeah. <gasps> your gas cannot continue, you have to slow down in order to keep going. Uh, but the, the lactate threshold test identifies that metabolic uh, moment, literally where your, your body is producing lactic acid faster than it can clear it. And with endurance training, hopefully we can boost that level so that you can work at a higher intensity uh, and produce fewer blood lactate so that, you know, next time you come in for a test, maybe you started, you, your lactate threshold was 200 watts and you come back, you've trained for three months, you come back the next time your uh, lactate threshold occurred at 230 watts, 240 right. watts, something like that. So that's when we know that endurance training is working is when we can see that metabolically your body can handle higher intensities and, and produce fewer, you know, produce and still recycle lactic acid, blood lactate. And uh, you mentioned a VO2 test. Yeah. VO2 test measures the maximal amount of oxygen that can be consumed by an athlete. 
So this uh, also is a metabolic test. In this case, an athlete usually wears a mask or some kind of a face covering and, and inhales and exhales air through breathing tubes. And all the air that they exhale is analyzed by a VO2 analyzer, which shows how much oxygen they have consumed and also how much carbon dioxide they're breathing off. And in, in this case, these tests are usually, they usually proceed a little faster because we want to increase the intensity uh, fast enough so that the athlete doesn't just fatigue and stop working out, but they actually can reach a maximal uh, oxygen consumption level. So the stages in a VO2 test are usually shorter, like about one minute each. Right. And basically we continue monitoring the athlete's heart rate as well as oxygen consumption as exercise energy increases and the test stops when the athlete literally is no longer able to continue. So in a, in a true lactate threshold test, you never really go to your complete maximum. In a VO2 test, yes, you do go to your full maximal exertion, but thankfully it's for a very short period of time. That's awesome. So and that those are really that. things that you test on occasion with your athletes, but they're really helpful. Right. Yeah. And it's kind, of, it's kind of nice to know what your max VO2 is. And obviously with aerobic training, you can see an increase in max VO2. We see the biggest increases in LT levels and VO2 levels if we started out with someone who was a complete beginner because they would have a complete untrained system and and they only have really an upward trajectory. It's harder to see significant increases in VO2 with athletes who have been training for years. And this is where, again, manipulating their training and introducing different variables might help to boost those gains further. Uh, And usually in a max VO2 test, you also see the anaerobic threshold, which is the metabolic breakpoint where an athlete um, starts, you know, it's similar to the LT, where you start breathing off carbon dioxide at a faster rate than you're actually using oxygen, to put it in a really simple terms. But this also shows where the athlete crosses over from aerobic metabolism, where they're using a mix of carbohydrates and fats for energy production to where they're using strictly carbohydrates for energy production. So you do these tests. Are you still, you're at Chelsea Peers Fitness or? Yes. yes. So are you, you're doing these tests there now that we're back? We will begin to open these up. Yes. So people can contact so, you if they want to get started right, with this exactly. testing. Yeah. And I'll include all that in the show notes. So, you know, speaking of training and testing, when you're training for endurance events in cycling, do you increase your training 10% per weekend? Like, does it work similarly to running in terms of it mileage and increasing? I think it works similarly to running. I think you can be a little more in- aggressive in increasing the duration in biking uh, because there's less impact. The big right. limiter I think, with running is uh, the, the physiological, the damage physically that you get from slapping the pavement over and over again and the impact forces. With cycling, there's very little, there's no impact really. So it's more a matter of building muscle endurance. But you do have to be careful and not try to do too much too soon because then you can place excessive stress on the joints and the muscles and end up with overuse injuries, which will take a lot more time to recover from than if you had just proceeded at a moderate increase of intensity. So yeah, I would say, and with a good training program, just by uh, monitoring an athlete's performance via many of the training tools we now have, you can see when they're making progress and when they've done too much and they're actually starting to regress before they hit that level where it's outright injuries or real 
you know, overuse syndromes or, you know, chronic fatigue or something. So hopefully, you know, we can use these new training tools, power meters, uh, other training software and stuff to identify, oh, is this athlete still moving on a, a positive projection or are they starting to you know, suffer and they're, they're actually more harm than good. So if you're training for a century and you know, your basic bike ride is 40 miles, then you mm-hmm. start with 40 miles and do you, do you do like periodization training where you're like four weeks? Oh, so it's the same thing. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. And then you have a good, a mix of intervals, endurance, hills, speed, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. And obviously, you know, if someone is training for a very specific event, we try to throw in training that will help them, you know, to uh, meet the demands of that particular t- terrain or that particular climate. You know, if they are going to be going somewhere where there's a really difference in the climate, if you're coming from a cold uh, environment in the winter and you decide you're going to go do some century on the equator in the middle of January, you better try to do something to acclimate to that environment, or it's going to be a real shock to the system. So, you know, either, I mean, I know athletes who have gone as deep as, you know, to really doing heat protocol training for specific events so that they're ready to handle that. And it won't be a big stress to their system. Right. And so speaking of heat training and recreating environments, how do you feel about indoor training and riding on a trainer or doing these challenges on Zwift And how does that translate to your outdoor success? I mean, I think it can be really good because, again, you have to really, you have to focus. And if you want to, you know, do more heat protocol type training, you can, of course, make the environment in your indoor setting warmer. I mean, I recommend for normal training, make sure you have a fan, keep the room on the cool side. It doesn't have to be frigid cold. You don't have to have a fan that's blowing, you know, at hurricane force, but just something to keep the air circulating so you're not super sweaty and not uncomfortable just because, you know, you're you're drowning in sweat. But um, definitely, I think that those things can really help you stay sharp. And it just gives you a little extra motivation that if you're just going out for a normal workout, you wouldn't perhaps challenge yourself as much. And, you know, it provides another uh, element of variety and and interest. So I think those things are great. Yeah. And I mean, you've like spearheaded and pioneered the indoor cycling program at Chelsea Piers for as far back as I can remember. Uh, So, you know, how I know that you're a huge fan of indoor training. How do you Mm. leverage this amazing opportunity to train indoors to really level up your skills for when you get back outside? Well, I mean, I think definitely consistency is the first thing. Make sure you are consistent in your training, you know, ride frequently enough to meet the the demands of your particular goals. And that's going to be different, you know, for someone who's obviously doing triathlons, they're going to have to mix their cycling workouts with the other cardio sports, running and swimming that they do. Uh, For someone who's a dedicated cyclist, you know, do, you know, analyze your goals, talk it over with the coach about how many days a week you need. And some people that, and also check the react, the, the reality of your own personal schedule, you know, don't be overly optimistic and say, yeah, I can ride six days a week. And if you're constantly struggling to get in three workouts a week, then readjust your schedule to be realistic with the demands of your uh, work schedule and, and personal schedule. But I think consistency is the most important thing because uh, generally frequency can kind of 
uh, overcome a lot of deficiencies in other area if the if the rider is training consistently enough. Uh, you can get by with, you know, maybe you miss a couple of high intensity workouts or one thing and another, but if you're riding consistently enough, you'll still have a good enough base that you can temporarily meet challenges that, that come your way and being able to train your weaknesses. And if you are starting out, if you've taken a break, start back easy. Don't try to do too much too soon. Spend a good four to six weeks just working on your aerobic base right. before you really get into higher intensity interval training. I think a lot of people make the mistake of jumping into really high intensity stuff or and it may be also due to the popularity of H of HIIT workouts, right. you know, in gyms, yes. um, that feeling of, you know, going really, really hard for short efforts. When I think that may, mainly it's a more a matter of a more a matter of keeping building that strong aerobic base. So you have a good platform. And then from there, you can really work on increasing those other variables. Are you leading rides on Zwift? I have, I have met a lot of, you know, I meet a lot of my athletes and go for group rides and, you know, I'll get together groups of people like our bike team was doing a lot of races on Zwift. And, you know, I'm thinking about that. I should try to organize group rides of my own just so that, you know, especially with that have similar interests so that we can really focus on doing certain kind of rides or certain kind of workouts together. Are you on a Wahoo at home? I have a tax Neo2 trainer, Neo2 T trainer, which is really great. It's very similar. Wahoo is great. Tax Neo2 is great there. And also the trainer by uh, Cyclops, I think it's the M series. Those are also really great. The nice thing about the tax Neo2 T is, uh, which the Wahoo kickers don't offer is uh, tax has something called real feel which if you're riding over cobblestones, the bike shakes. Oh my In fact, God. the first time I was Neo 2T and we started riding on cobblestones, all of a sudden I was right, I was shaking. I thought that the trainer was falling apart. <laughs> and uh, it, then I realized, oh no, it's just simulating the feel of cobbles. So yeah, that's kind of an interesting thing. If nothing else, it wakes you up. Yeah. You're never going to drift off and be bored. How was yeah. it going from traditional shifters to electronic? Because Nelson told me that you're on like the Cervelo. I will say, I mean, years ago when I first tried a bike with electronic shifting, I, the one thing I couldn't believe was how easy it is to shift. Uh, we had one bike in this bike shop where I was working that had DI2 on it. And the owner of the shop says, oh, get on this bike, try this out. And it was the wrong size bike for me, first of all, about two sizes too big. But I go riding down the block. And I'm trying to shift and I'm thinking, I don't feel anything. This bike isn't shifting. I look down, I'm in my heaviest gear. And what I didn't realize was you don't get that mechanical pull. It's like you just, you just, you can shift with your pinky finger. So it's like driving like automatic. Yeah. Yeah. I was in, you know, I was riding in heavy traffic. I couldn't hear really. All I could hear was this little, and I thought, what is this? I didn't get that feeling of that mechanical pull. So to me, that was the biggest shock was when you use mechanical shifting and you push that lever, you really feel the release of the cable. With electronic, you just hit the lever and it's like, and yes, you'll feel it on the cassette and in your pedal action, but you don't get that response in your hands. So, and it is, it does amaze me, you know, how effortlessly, uh, you know, now I can shift. It's just literally, I I shift with the lightest touch possible. And uh, the last, iteration of mechanical shifting I had, I literally felt like I had to break my wrist every time to yeah. push the lever. It, it definitely makes it much easier. 
And now with the blips that you can get all over the handlebars, you can uh, put a, a shifter lever with certain brands of uh, components so that you can shift from any position you want. That's incredible. Do you have any last tips for my listeners, like for beginners? Yeah, I would say beginners, you know, don't be afraid to consult experienced cyclists or uh, like I say, it really helps to go to a, a coach, especially a USA Cycling licensed coach, because they can give you information that will help you cut to the chase and make progress a lot faster. Um, you can try figuring it out by yourself and it'll probably take you about 10 years, which <laughs> if you've got that kind of time, that's fine, you know, figure it out. Uh, but if you really want to make progress faster and start having more fun on the bike sooner, you know, enlist the help of someone who's qualified and who can get you off on the right foot. And for the people that are winning triathlon and want to take it to the next level? <laughs> I would say, hey, uh, you're, 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 you already got to have the aerobic engine in place. Now it's just a matter of let's go. Let's get you out on the bike and fine tune your bike handling skills and give you some workouts that'll even increase your overall bike performance. So awesome. you're, you're already in the game. I now, mean, you don't have to work on developing an aerobic base. Thank you so much, Anne-Marie. And hopefully I'll see you out hey, on the bike. Welcome. Yes. Let's get together for a ride. That's what I say. I'm like, I'm missing riding with everyone now. And I'm going around trying to ride with every single friend I know. I'll so. meet you for a ride. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm ready. So I'll DM, yeah. I'll text you after this. Thank you again. Awesome. Listen, thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks again for tuning in to Marnie on the Move. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review in Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social at Marnie on the Move for Facebook and Instagram and Marnie Salop on Twitter. Head over to our website, MarnieOnTheMove.com for more info on this episode, links in the show notes, and of course, sign up for our quarterly newsletter, The Download to get updates, deals, giveaways, and information on future events for 2019. I want to hear from you. Email me, marnieonthemove1 at gmail.com. And let me know what you're enjoying, what you want to hear more of. If you have questions for our guests, just reach out. 